0: It's super easy. Just visit Serial Napper on your Spotify app and click the button at the top that says exclusive episodes for subscribers. Don't use Spotify for your listening? No problem. Just visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper to get your episodes ad-free and enjoy uninterrupted storytelling while you get your naps in. everyone, my name is Nikki Young and this is Serial Napper, an international true crime podcast. I'm back with another true crime story to lull you to sleep or perhaps to give you nightmares. It's a tale as old as time. When 25-year-old Alexandra Pesic married her husband, Joe, she believed that she had found the man of her dreams, that the couple would live out the rest of their lives in blissful matrimony. What she didn't realize at the time was that she was getting so much more than a life partner. She was also getting a meddling mother-in-law named Yelka Pesik. While Alexandra believed that Yelka's controlling and nitpicking behavior was irritating and fully embodied the traits of a monster-in-law, she had no idea that her life was in very real danger. Not until she randomly received a copy of a true crime book in the mail featuring the story of a young woman who was being terrorized before finally being killed. The book highlighted several chilling passages describing horrific acts of violence against this woman, acts that would inspire the mother-in-law from hell to go through with her evil plan. So, let's jump right in. Before Alexandra ever met and married her husband Joe, she was known to catch the attention of just about everyone. Alexandra has been described as this beautiful, tall blonde who was equally as funny and charming as she was gorgeous. Her parents had moved to the outskirts of Vancouver after immigrating to Canada from Yugoslavia, and she was said to be very close to them, particularly with her mother. While Alexandra was busy embracing her good looks as a beauty queen, winning the Miss Burnaby pageant in 1984, and even entering the Miss Canada pageant the following year when she was just 19, her parents, they were working class, and they wanted her to find gainful employment that would really just serve her throughout the years. Really, she could have made it as a model. She definitely had the looks, the grace, and the charm, but she mostly just did the pageants for fun and because it helped her with her confidence. After graduating from high school, she became a dental assistant. She would work at the dental office all week, and then she would spend much of her weekend with her mother. One of the things that the mother and daughter duo really enjoyed doing together was attending open houses. Together, they would dream about the future and the possibility of one day owning one of these beautiful houses. It was during one of these open houses that Alex would meet her future mother-in-law. Alex and her mom overheard a woman speaking their native tongue of Yugoslavian, and they just had to introduce themselves. The woman's name was Jelka Pesic, and her family had also immigrated to Canada from Yugoslavia they very quickly hit it off, as their families were quite similar in background and values. Yelka talked about how her family owned a car mechanic shop, and Alex, she mentioned that her car would need to be serviced soon, so maybe she would take it over there. Well, and Yelka, she saw this as an opportunity to set her son, Joe Pesek, up with this young, beautiful Yugoslavian woman. She told Alexandra to come by the shop, and then her son would fix her car right up for her. Sometimes I can't help but think about how insane it is that just one little conversation could completely change the trajectory of someone's entire life. This chance meeting between Alexandra and Yelka, it would destroy everything that was going right in Alex's life. But she had no idea about any of that when she brought her car into the Pesic family's mechanic shop and met Yelka's son, 27-year-old Joe Pesic. First impressions? She thought he was really cute, and he thought that she was one of the most beautiful women that he had ever laid eyes on. But more than that, they hit it off right away. The pair had a lot in common, both coming from traditional Yugoslavian families. Joe asked her to go on a date where they would share their first kiss and they became inseparable over the course of their relationship. Alexandra couldn't stop talking about this new man in her life. Shortly after they had begun dating, she would tell all of her friends that she was falling in love with him. He was the one. Joe was incredibly charming and romantic. He would show up randomly with a full bouquet of flowers in hand, not for any special occasion, just to show her how much he cared for her. He would also take her on the most romantic dates, including weekend trips away on his motorcycle. It was very much a whirlwind romance, and after just one month of dating, Joe popped the question and asked Alexandra to marry him. It appeared to be a dream come true. Joe's mother, Yelka, was over the moon excited to have a new daughter-in-law that she had practically handpicked. She jumped right into wedding planning, and this is when some of the red flags began to show. Now, Yelka wasn't fully waving around these giant red flags just yet. There were a few things here and there that certainly bothered Alexandra. The problem was, Yelka was disguising all of her demands as simple suggestions, but if Alexandra didn't like the suggestion, then it became a huge issue. Joe would have to get involved and manage the tension between his mother and his new fiancé. But it didn't stop the two from constantly clashing. Yelka wanted a say in everything from the wedding decorations, the venue, and even the color of the dresses. The night before the wedding, Alexandra nearly decided to call it quits. She wasn't sure if she would be able to handle her new prospective mother-in-law's demands or suggestions. Alex and Yelka had been arguing nonstop during the wedding planning, culminating in a big fight at the rehearsal dinner her friends would try to calm her down and reassure her that she was just experiencing premarital jitters and that everything would be fine. So the next day, June 11th, 1988, Alexandra and Joe, they get married in Vancouver in front of all of their friends and family. It was said to be a beautiful day that went according to plan, without much complaining or intervention from Yelka. Once the big day was over, Alex and Joe, they would spend a week in Hawaii for their honeymoon. Everything felt just perfect. But when the honeymoon was over and they returned back to Vancouver to go back to the daily grind, things became complicated once again. Alexandra's new mother-in-law began stopping by their apartment while they were both at work and dropping off gifts like groceries and new clothing. Alex would return home from the dental office at the end of the day to find her fridge and her cupboard stocked with food that she didn't buy. There was also new clothing purchased by Yelka that she thought Alex might like to wear. While some might believe this to be a thoughtful present, Yelka made the new clothing sound more like a serious suggestion to change the way that Alex dressed. Alex felt really uncomfortable with the way that Yelka was meddling in their lives, and she would constantly express this frustration to her new husband, Joe. It put him in a really uncomfortable position, stuck between his new wife and his mother. But more often than not, he would take Alex's side and just try to keep the peace with his mother. After all, he saw his mom nearly every day as he continued to work at the family mechanic shop. The dust would settle again, and then Joe's parents offered the couple a very sizable gift. A $100,000 down payment that they could use on a new home. The only issue was, this gift, it came with strings attached. Joe's parents, they had already decided on a house that the newlyweds should move into. It was a beautiful bungalow, that was located just down the street from them, maybe five minutes away from the Pesek family home. So of course, Alex had her reservations about taking the money because then she'd feel like they were constantly in their back pocket. Ultimately, they did decide to take the gift of the down payment and purchase the home, which I mean, I probably would have done the same thing. $100,000 towards a new home, thats that's huge. It should have been a happy moment, another milestone in memory, but almost immediately, drama ensued. Yelka now began to try to control the way that Alex and Joe's home was decorated. For example, Alexandra wanted a bit of red tile in her new backsplash. After all, I mean, she's the one who does have to look at it every day. But Yelka, she put up a fuss and simply would not allow it. The first year of Alex and Joe's marriage, it was a really difficult one. The tension between Alex and her new mother-in-law, it was at an all-time high. Joe would sometimes go weeks without talking to his mother, and he actually began to resent Alex for the deterioration of his relationship with his mom. PSA to anyone married, listening to my podcast, or thinking about getting married, this could have been resolved if Joe put up legitimate boundaries, but he didn't. When you get married, you leave your parents behind and you begin a new family. From that point forward, your spouse should be your first priority. There is no gray area here, so just cut the umbilical cord and stop letting your mother decide how you decorate your house and dress your wife. So instead of setting those clear boundaries, Joe tried to solve the issue by putting space between his wife and his mom. But while they didn't have the opportunity to battle it out, the animosity between them was still very much there. Alex was an independent young woman, and Yelka, she was truly a monster-in-law. But things were about to go from bad to much worse. At the end of 1989, Alex becomes pregnant with a little boy who they would name Brandon. The couple, they were over the moon excited to welcome their first child together. But with a new baby in the family, Joe felt like he had to start letting his mother in their lives once again so that she could connect with her grandson. Bad idea. Almost immediately, Yelka began to try to control what Alex was feeding baby Brandon and how often she was feeding him. She had non-stop unsolicited baby advice that was more like a demand than a helpful suggestion. One particular incident really disturbed Alex. Joe was going to be taking her for a much-needed night out on the town. With a new baby, Alex was just really busy and she needed some time away with her husband. Joe thought that it would also be a great opportunity for his mother to connect with the baby, so Yelka was going to be taking care of him for the night. When they drop baby Brandon off at the house, Yelka mentions that she's going to be making him a tea that will help him sleep well. Brandon was exclusively breastfed, and Alex, she didn't want him having anything that wasn't breast milk. He was still really young, maybe five or six months old. Before leaving for their date night, Alex makes it perfectly clear to Yelka that Brandon is to only be fed breast milk. Alex and Joe have a nice date night out, and when they return to pick up the baby, they notice that he's in a very deep sleep. Alexandra touches Brandon to try to stir him, but he doesn't wake up. She checks his pulse, and she feels that it is very weak. Alexandra asks Yelka if she gave him that tea and she admitted that she did. So Alex and Joe, they rush the baby to the hospital because they have no idea what was in this tea and Yelka, she's not being very forthcoming. Thankfully, Brandon is okay, but the trust, it's completely broken. Alex doesn't want Yelka to be left alone with her baby ever again and I don't blame her. That night, Alex took baby Brandon to her mother's house to stay. This incident really was the straw that broke the camel's back because Alexandra, she was done trying to work things out with Joe's family. She gave him an ultimatum. He could either cut ties with his family and choose her and their baby or they could leave and he could keep his toxic family. It wasn't an easy decision. Financially, Joe was kind of trapped. He worked at the family mechanic shop, so if he were to cut ties, he would lose his job and his only source of income. His family, they had also given them a substantial amount of money towards their home. He didn't feel right about just cutting them out of their lives. In her heart, Alex knew that Joe could never fully choose their new family over his parents. So, just two years into the marriage, she filed for divorce. Joe and his family, especially Yelka, were shocked. I've got to assume that Yelka was so delulu that she thought that the marriage contract was somehow enough to keep Alex there no matter what. But Alexandra, she she was out. She was done. This was the beginning of a very ugly divorce case and custody battle. Love to travel. From the bustling city of Tokyo to the beaches of Thailand, there's nothing I enjoy more than getting the chance to see the world and experience different cultures firsthand. But the language barrier, it can be an issue. Sure, you can use an app on your phone, but things often get lost in translation. I truly believe that learning at least some of the language of the land that you're visiting is the first step to ensuring a smooth and meaningful experience. That's why I'm excited about Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language that you want to learn. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Japanese, Spanish, German, Korean, Italian, and more. Learning a new language can be tough, especially with all of the different nuances but Rosetta Stone is designed to help you speak like a local, so you'll feel confident in what you're saying. I don't know how many times I've been traveling to a new country and struggled to get my point across just because I wasn't properly pronouncing something that I thought I knew, which is why I love Rosetta Stone's built-in true accent feature, which helps you master your accent. They also have convenient desktop and app options so you can learn on the go. Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership includes all 25 languages. So once you're finished learning one language, you can start on another. Whether you're an avid traveler like me or just want to impress your friends with a new skill, it's a steal of a deal at 50% off. That's right. 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. At the direction of his family, Joe insisted on wanting everything. He wanted full custody of Brandon and he wanted the family home. His mother, in particular, felt that he should have the house because they had put down such a substantial amount for them to buy it. And they really didn't want Alexandra to get anything because they felt like the divorce, it was the ultimate betrayal. Thankfully, Alex was able to find a lawyer to help her to battle her soon-to-be ex-husband and in-laws, and she would get full custody of Brandon, child support, and part of the home. As you can imagine, the pessex were pissed. Alex tried to carry on with her life. She took care of her son, and she moved back in with her mother, while they sold the family home and then split the profits. Meanwhile, the Pesics stewed in their anger. It's said that Joe was in arrears on his child support, and he wasn't bothering to be a very active father, which is ridiculous because he had just fought tooth and nail to try to get full custody of this son, and now he's like a complete deadbeat. Beyond that, the Pesek family was threatening her. Things were so tense that Alex even gets a restraining order against Joe. She wants Joe and the rest of the Peseks to be far away from her. She goes to the police for help several times, but unfortunately, her pleas, they mostly went ignored. She's fearful that they will all conspire against her, and she had a reason to be fearful. One day, Alex received a random paperback book in the mail titled The Death of Cindy James by Neil Hall. Now, I covered Cindy's story in a previous episode. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it because it's one of the most bizarre stories that I've ever heard and law enforcement, they still don't know what happened to her. But if you are unfamiliar with the case, let me just give you a brief overview. In the book, it talks about Cindy, the victim, and how she felt like she was being stalked and harassed and terrorized by someone, but she didn't know who. She went to the police repeatedly, but police suspected that she was actually doing these things to herself and there was no one stalking her. Ultimately, Cindy died in a very suspicious manner, and it is suspected that she may have been killed by the person who was alleged to be stalking her. The book details everything that happened to Cindy, and it even had several passages specific to the terror that she experienced underlined and highlighted. Whoever had mailed Alex this book wanted to be sure that she read about all of the horrific things that were done to Cindy James before she died. Now, a few days after she gets this book in the mail, Alex has a friend over. They were sitting in the living room while this friend fed baby Brandon a bottle, when suddenly, they heard a crackling sound coming from outside. When they looked out the window, there was a tree on Alex's front lawn that was on fire. Someone had deliberately set fire to this tree, very similar to what had been described in a highlighted passage in that book. Something very similar had happened to Cindy James. Things that were highlighted in this book were now happening to Alex, and she was terrified that she was being watched and followed. She even claimed that there was a specific car she would often see following her, and she told her friends that she believed the Pesek family truly wanted her dead. Things were so bad that Alex decided to hire a private investigator named Ozzy Caban to find out who was stalking her. She believed that there was a white car that had been following her around, but she didn't know who was driving the car. She gave the private investigator the license plate of the car so that he could look into it. Before she ever found out, everything came to a head. On August 5th, 1992, Alex and her co-worker, Bernice, they were leaving the dental office after work at around 6 p.m., They headed towards Alex's car as she was going to be giving Bernice a lift home. Bernice got into the passenger side of the car, and Alex she went to get into the driver's seat. Bernice looked down to stuff her gym bag on the floor between her feet, and that is when she heard the first gunshot. She put her head down as she heard more gunshots ring out. Then she heard the wheels of a car pull away. When she looked up again, she saw Alex on the ground, bleeding from gunshot wounds to her head. She ran back into the dentist's office to call 911. Alexandra was rushed to the hospital, but sadly, she never regained consciousness, and she's pronounced dead at just 25 years old. At the crime scene, police find Alex's vehicle with four bullet holes in the fender and the door. Two bullets had entered Alex's head— Investigators believed that a 380 caliber gun was used. They also find an old telephone bill in the console of the car that had a license plate number written on it, but at that point, it's unclear what the connection is. This shooting happened in a busy residential area in broad daylight, so there were multiple witnesses, as many as 30, for the police to interview one witness proved to be very helpful. He said that he saw two people sitting in a red vehicle down the street a few hours prior to the shooting, and they stood out to him because they were wearing face coverings, baseball caps, and had sunglasses on. They looked like they were trying to conceal their identity. Again, this sighting, it was about three hours prior to the shooting. He described the occupants of the red vehicle as two white men with dark hair. Another man saw a man lean out of a red car, which he believed to be a Camaro, and fire six shots at Alex before taking off. This witness happened to get the license plate number, which didn't match the license plate written on the bill, but it did match to a red Camaro that had been stolen just a few days prior to the shooting. Now, at least, police, they had something to go on. This appeared to be a targeted shooting. Alex, she was the only person shot. Someone had apparently stolen this car specifically to use in the shooting. In speaking with Alexandra's friends and family, one name was repeatedly mentioned as someone that they should investigate. Her ex-husband, Joe Pesek. They had recently had this very ugly divorce and custody battle, so there was definitely motive there. When police go to speak with Joe, they note that he seems unusually calm and unemotional, despite the fact that his ex-lover and mother of his child has just been killed. But he also says that he has an alibi. Joe says he was at a swimming pool with his son, and he had a time-stamped receipt from his entrance to the pool to prove it. He had it on hand to show authorities right away, which they found to be kind of unusual and suspicious. So while Joe did have an alibi, the police wanted to continue to investigate him a little bit more. Through speaking with friends, they also learned that Alex believed that she was being stalked. They heard about the random true crime book with the highlighted passages, about her front lawn being set on fire, and the fact that she had hired her own private investigator. The investigator, Ozzy, reaches out directly to the police with his findings after he has learned what had happened to Alex. Here's the information that he was able to gather during his surveillance. On August 5th, the day that Alex had been killed, Ozzy was actually surveilling Joe Pesek. He noted that Joe picked up his child at 5pm and then went to the swimming pool in Burnaby. So his alibi did in fact check out. Ozzy was also surveilling Joe's mother, Yelka, that day, and she was spotted outside of the repair shop around the time of the shooting, meaning that neither Joe nor Yelka were the ones who pulled the trigger. Still, the police, they decided that it was worth it to have a few undercover police follow them just to see if they did anything that seemed suspicious. They weren't fully buying their story. Ozzy gave the police the description and the license plate number of the white car that Alex believed was following her. This was the same license plate number that had been found in Alex's car scribbled on that old bill. It came back as belonging to a man named Milan Nanandik, who was a family friend who had even attended Alex and Joe's wedding. Milan didn't have much of a record, and the police weren't sure if he could have been involved in the shooting. A few days after Alex's murder, the stolen red Camaro is found abandoned in a McDonald's parking lot. A few of the McDonald's employees who were working that day witnessed this car being abandoned and they told the police that they saw the red car come flying up into the parking lot. Two men got out and then jumped into a white car before again taking off. It's believed that the white car the getaway car was the same one owned by Milan Nanandik, the one that had been following Alex prior to her murder. Inside of the red car, police find a palm print on the gear shift, a fingerprint on the license plate, and some hair on the passenger seat. The prints, they were in the system, and they turned out to belong to a man named Lawrence DeLorme. He was a known car thief, and he was likely the one who was driving the red Camaro police decided that they would now need to also tail these two men to find out what their connection to this murder was. On the afternoon of August 10th, undercover police spot Milan going to the Pesek family home. Soon after, Yelka is seen leaving in her vehicle and driving to the nearby mall. She parks in the underground parking lot, and the police observe Milan sit up in the back seat. Apparently, he was there hiding the whole time. Yelka and Milan go into the mall separately. They also leave separately. They get back into the car, and Milan gets on the floor into his hiding spot again as they drive back to Yelka's house. Now, when they arrive back, police decide that it's now or never. When Milan gets out of Yelka's car, police decide it's time to make an arrest. And when they take him into custody, they find him with $30,000 in cash in $100 bills. They arrest him on suspicion of Alex's murder, and it looked like he was paid handsomely to do it. Inside of his house, they also find a handgun in a Crown Royal whiskey bag with a box of shells. Six bullets were missing. The gun would turn out to be a match to the one used to kill Alex, but apparently Milan, he wasn't the one to actually pull the trigger. Milan pointed to a man named David Segoviano, Police speak with David's girlfriend, who says that he has actually been acting really strange within the past few days, even deciding to suddenly cut off all of his hair. She agrees to wiretap her phone to try to get more information out of her boyfriend about the shooting, and she records a minefield of evidence. He completely spills the beans. He confessed to being the one who actually pulled the trigger and shot Alex. He points a finger at Lawrence Delorme, the car thief, for driving the red Camaro, Milan Nanendik for being the getaway driver of the white car, and he names Yelka Pesik as the mastermind behind the whole thing. Yelka had hated her ex-daughter-in-law so much that she had taunted her from afar before hiring these men to kill her in broad daylight. A friend of Yelka's would seal her fate when she called in a very interesting tip. The friend claimed that she had been visiting Yelka when she asked her if she wanted to go for a walk. They walked right past Alex's house when suddenly Yelka decided to set the trees on the front lawn on fire. This friend also claimed that Yelka was obsessed with the Cindy James book and she had likely been the one to have mailed it. She had seen it in the home before and suddenly was missing after, so two and two together. In 1993, the three men involved in the shooting, as well as Alex's ex-mother-in-law, Yelka Pesik, they go on trial for Alex's murder. They were all found guilty and given the maximum sentence for first-degree murder in Canada, which is 25 years. No charges would ever be laid against Alex's ex-husband, Joe Pesic. Police, they just couldn't prove that he had any involvement. But there has always been a suspicion that he knew more than he was willing to say, especially with that little piece of evidence to prove his alibi. It was kind of strange. Alexandra's mother was able to get full custody of little Brandon, which was likely the best thing for him and exactly what Alex would have wanted. Joe basically abandoned his son and neglected to pay child support for the kid that he viciously fought Alex custody for. In 2008, Yelka applied for early release, but she was denied. There was very little sympathy for a woman who had her innocent daughter-in-law gunned down just because she felt betrayed by a divorce. Alex's family would sue Yelka Pesek in a wrongful death claim and eventually settled for $350,000, which would be used to care for Brandon until he turned 18, when he would be given the remainder of the money as an inheritance. The bit of good news that we can take away from this tragedy is that Brandon didn't have to grow up with a vile grandmother and a deadbeat dad. But sadly, because of their actions, he would also miss out on knowing his mother, Alexandra, who quite literally had the mother-in-law from hell. That's it for me tonight. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. And did you know I also have a Serial Napper true crime discussion group? Because I do! It's called Serial Society, and I'll have the link in my show notes. I'd love to chat with you about this case and all the other cases that I cover and anything else true crime. You can find my audio on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. I post all of my episodes in video format over on YouTube, so go check it out. And if you're watching on YouTube, I would love if you can give me a thumbs up on this video and subscribe. I'm over on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Serial underscore Napper, and I post things on TikTok, Serial Napper Nick, and that's all one word. Until next time, sweet dreams, stay kind, especially in the comments. Bye.